Open up to the book of Isaiah this morning. We're going to read a couple of places as we get rolling today, and one of them will be from Isaiah chapter 9. And if you want to feel in the know, we'll finish in Hebrews 6. So why don't we read together? And I'll begin by reading from Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves a covering. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Skip down verse 15. God begins to address the serpent about his part to play in the whole rebellion that humanity joins that had failed in heaven and was brought to earth. And he says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, now skip to Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal, the passionate desire of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so, Father, as we pause today, to re-enter the tension of a broken world and a longing for a good God to make it whole again. God, we pray that you would open our own hearts to receive the hope that you have given to us in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to know I really love Christmas, and as we now get through Thanksgiving, uh, I love the fact that uh, Christmas time is here. I love the fact that as I look around during Christmas time that people seem just kind of generally more cheerful. I appreciate that an awful lot. I love the decoration. I love the carols and the songs. I love all of the excitement that comes with the holiday season. I love family traditions that are a part of each individual family gathering, that everyone has their own way of, of celebrating Christmas. I love that the world is exposed to great theology, even as they walk through a store or, or shop for groceries, that the carols that they hear for so many of them say such amazing things about Jesus. And I love for me that that opens a door for me to talk openly about my faith in Jesus and for people to be so receptive because Jesus is already beginning to be on their minds because it's Christmas time. I love the joy of the celebration of Christmas. And I love that COVID can't take that away. I realized COVID tried last year, and, and, and I realized for some of us, it did affect us. My parents were supposed to fly out here and surprise our children last year on Christmas Day, and their plans last minute got canceled. Now, thankfully, we hadn't told our kids, so they still don't know that they're 
Uh, great surprise was spoiled, so don't tell them. And yes, it did also rob me of one of my favorite Christmas pastimes, which is going into some sort of a shopping center and just kind of standing back and watching people frantic. <laughs> Maybe sadistic. But gosh, I, ever since like high school, I can remember going to a shopping mall in high school on Christmas Eve and just sitting down on a bench and laughing. Just watching people so stressed as they hustled from one place to the next. All the pressure that they felt in the 11th hour to make their purchases. As much as I love Christmas, though, I'm able to see and I'm willing to admit something about it. And that's that there's a pattern that you and I have the potential and maybe even a tendency to fall into at Christmas season. And that's that for most of us, we end up spending more, consuming more, eating more, and doing less in December than any month, any other month in the calendar year. And so for this reason, Christmas can end up being the least physically, emotionally, financially, and even spiritually healthy season of our year. And I believe that that doesn't have to be the truth for all of us. In fact, I believe as a follower of Jesus, we're meant to push back on some of the social norms or the world's broken patterns that exist around us, even if it's the broken patterns, patterns in the way that our culture observes and celebrates Christmas. Now, before you quickly jump to stand up and yell at me that I'm Ebenezer Scrooge or the Grinch, uh, let me explain all that I'm really admitting to you is that even in my own life, Jesus at times can get squeezed out of Christmas. That today, I, I just want to take the time and now us to start a series uh, leading up to Christmas that's doing what the great old Christmas hymn and carol tells us to do, that every heart would prepare room that we would make room for Jesus as we lead up to Christmas time and not just have the busyness of this season push us to that day to sit down and finally take a deep breath on the 25th of December and go, oh, we made it and it's here. You see, Advent is about doing just that. It's about slowing down when the world has a tendency to speed up at this time of year. It's about making room to prepare our hearts for a coming king that we welcome at Christmas. And so today, that's what we'll do is we'll begin a four-week series, an Advent series together leading up to Christmas. And for some of you, as I even mentioned the word Advent, you've got some PTSD attached to that, maybe from your childhood growing up in a church that you were unhappy in or maybe seem unhealthy and out of balance. For some of us, myself included, I've never been in a church my entire life growing up uh, that has observed a season of Advent. And so this is new for me and maybe for some of you. For others of you, you're familiar with this and like, yeah, what's the big deal? And no PTSD attached, and this is very normal for you, and maybe even something you look forward to. But, but let's start just by asking and answering the question, well, what is Advent? If this is foreign for you, as it has over the years been for me, the word Advent is, is a Latin word. Uh, the Latin word is Adventus, that we then get our English word Advent from, and it simply means coming or arrival. It's a season of waiting for an arrival. That's what the idea of a season of Advent, beginning the, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, that people take time to pause to remember that there's something coming. There's an arrival looming. Uh, for my wife, she's been pregnant three different times with our three little ones. And there's a reality once you get a positive pregnancy test that a baby's coming. And that does shift things dramatically in your mind, but things shift in a greater way when you hit that third trimester and all of a sudden she really starts to show, or you're reaching the nine-month mark and you only make this mistake once in life where you look at your spouse and say, you look like you could pop at any moment. <laughs> Something changes when you realize the baby is coming soon. 
It's an expectant kind of waiting. There's, there's a tension in the waiting. And all year long, we know that, that we have a good God that we're waiting to come and make all things new again. But this time of year, we're meant to view it basically as a pregnant moment where, where we're in the third trimester and we're waiting with expectation and bated breath for the arrival, the return of Jesus. You see, Advent is the traditional celebration It's the celebration of the first arrival, the first advent, the first coming of Jesus in humility. And it is also simultaneously the eager expectation of his second advent, his second coming, not in humility, but in glory. This season is meant for us to slow down to remember how he came in humility, but to look forward to how he'll come one day to rid the world of sin, suffering, sickness, and death. You see, for many of us who grew up in Western evangelicalism, the Advent season, it's, it's unfamiliar and totally foreign for us. We're just more accustomed to really uh, Christmas in its modern commercialized form that is, yes, a ton of fun, uh, but it's also admittedly a bit warped by individualism and even consumerism, which is a very interesting way, really, when you think about it, to celebrate the, the self-emptying love of God that is expressed at Christmas that it's expressed for us and celebrated with this consumer mentality where we're just stockpiling items. Listen, uh, I don't want you to get the wrong idea from me, especially as we're starting this. If you swung by my house before Thanksgiving this year, we broke all the rules and had a Christmas tree set up. So I love Christmas. I'm not dogging it. In fact, if you drove by our house at any point last night, we had forgotten to turn off our Christmas lights uh, last night, because on Friday, as soon as Thanksgiving was done, it's no longer a social faux pas, and so we set up all of our outdoor Christmas decor, and so if you drive by our house anytime between now and Christmas, you'll see a Star Wars-themed series of inflatables and Advent vibe happening on the O'Keefe front lawn. As fun as it all is in our modern way of celebrating Christmas, it's really a relatively new phenomenon. Just the last 150 years, if you look at history, this is how people have observed and celebrated Christmas, with the giving of gifts like we do. But for much longer than that, for some 1,500 years, Jesus' followers across every tradition in the world have set aside four weeks leading up to Christmas Day as this meaningful season of hope-filled anticipation known as Advent, or a season of waiting for an arrival. It's about a reflection. It's what we do. We reflect on the world's brokenness and our own deep need for a Savior to heal our own brokenness. It's a time for us to step back into the shoes of the nation of Israel as they long anticipated, they waited for Messiah to arrive some 2,000 years ago. It's our season where we also pause to look ahead and long for the day when Jesus returns to make things right again. Over centuries, followers of Jesus around the globe have done this because it makes the arrival of Christmas Day that much more of a meaningful, that much more of a sweet celebration when Christmas finally arrives. So this is why for us as a church, we're going to pause as a church alongside of millions of other saints around the world and even billions of saints throughout the ages to celebrate and observe a season of Advent together. And the goal is that we would together over the next four weeks in celebration and anticipation of the the Son of God, the King of Kings, that we would pause to slow down and feel the tension of that anticipation. You see, what matters, I think, more than how you celebrate is really what you celebrate. And the goal of this series is to remind us of what we celebrate, what we have in Jesus, in his arrival, and what we have in our hope of his soon return. 
And so each week in this four-week series, we're going to tackle a different theme. We'll talk today about hope, then we'll talk about peace, we'll talk about joy, and we'll talk about love as well. And as we look at those topics, like we'll do this today with the topic of hope, we'll observe the fact that our world is void of this thing. And then we're going to talk about how we'll remember together collectively, we will not just observe the world, but we will remember that Christ has purchased this thing, that Christ has secured this thing, hope for us, in his first advent, his first arrival. But then we're going to talk about how we look forward to Jesus' return. We anticipate it. So we don't just look around at a broken world. We don't just remember, but we look forward in anticipation to when Christ will come and and allow us to enter into the perfect expression and experience of this thing. And so the first theme that we'll look at is that of hope. And, and all of us know about hope. All of us know what it is to anticipate a future that's better than our present. That's what hope is, right? It's the anticipation of a future that's better than the present moment. That's the feeling we experience. Hope is the feeling we experience when we choose to do that, when we find ourselves believing a better experience is to come than the one that we have today. It was USA Today that ran a story back in October of 2020. So we're just in the throes of the COVID pandemic and no one seems to know what's going to happen. All of us had hoped it would have been done by the summer of 2020 and yet it lingered on and all of us felt overwhelmed. And the article was entitled, Why It's So Important to Hope. Let me quote to you from it. It says that most people hope for something The big things, like an end to this pandemic, or their candidate to win the presidential election, a better future for their children, they hope for tangible things, a bigger paycheck, a safe home, good help. And then for some, they they hope for more nebulous ones, like love or respect or to feel seen. But recent polls show that while Americans remain at least somewhat hopeful about the future, hope is being tested. Suffering and division are ever-present, and there doesn't seem a clear path forward. But as psychologists say, hope is not a luxury. For mental health, it's a necessity. You see, most people think about it, hope, like sprinkles on top of an ice cream. Like they're great if they're there, but it's actually fundamental to our basic well-being. My friends, hope we've learned again afresh is not an option for a healthy human. We need hope to survive. Without hope, we're stuck in our circumstances, and we can't see a way out of the darkness of the moment. And all of us today, just sitting here, we all have hope placed in something. Every person is is living with a mental picture of a bright future, unless you're a person who today finds themselves hopeless. For you, then, you're Your idea of a future is only tragic, it's only dark, it's only bleak. Our bright future might look like, if you're imagining what it could be, it might look like health on the other side of illness. For you today, it might look like a change in relationship status on the the other side of loneliness. It might look like a whole heart on the other side of brokenness. It might look like a certain bank account balance, or even a specific job title you're chasing, or a zip code that you want to find yourself living in. But the kind of hope that's available to followers of Jesus is very different because our hope is not about just receiving new things. Our hope is about a person. Our hope is a person, Jesus, who keeps all of his promises about the future. You see, real hope that we have is a heart that trusts Jesus' promises over and above all of life's circumstances. 
The problem is we as a society have always been placing our hope in things that are always changing and beyond any of our control. And the past two years have really illustrated this in a terribly painful way for all of us. But as a follower of Jesus, and you'll hear me say this several times this morning, to hope in God is to believe that the story is not done being written. To hope in God is to believe really that his story that he's writing is not yet done being written. You see, we observe a world around us that's void of hope. And this was true before Jesus' first coming. And this is true even today as we await Jesus' second coming to judge the world and make it right again. I mean, for so many people around us, think about their, their last year and a half or two years of life. It's, it's been marked by hopelessness. It's crazy to think it was back in 2008 that then uh, pre uh, presidential candidate Barack Obama, he used as a campaign slogan the term hope. Our country was needing to emerge out of an economic crisis, and things were looking very bleak. Hindsight's 2020, though, and now, for many of us, it almost seems unfortunate that someone has already used hope as a campaign mantra because it feels as though we're needing to emerge out of a far more bleak set of circumstances today than even years ago. I mean, in the past 18 months or so, articles have flooded the internet with titles like, and I'll quote them to you, dealing with hopelessness in the COVID-19 pandemic, dealing with depression during coronavirus, how to avoid depression during the coronavirus outbreak, Finding hope when everything feels hopeless. Feeling hopeless? Embrace it. What do you do when the future feels hopeless? As we are rolling into the summer of this last year, of this year, 2021, as the summer approached, a study was released that said 51% of young Americans feel depressed, they said. 26% of those who were polled ages 18 to 29 said that they had thought that they'd be better off dead and had thoughts of hurting themselves because of their, the depth of their hopelessness. Think about that. 51% of young Americans were referring to themselves as depressed and hopeless. 26% of those saying it was so bad, so bleak, that they'd rather not still be here. It's not just young people who are experiencing these things in our more recent history. One study that was published during uh, the month of February in 2021 reported that during the pandemic, four in 10 adults in the U.S. have reported symptoms anxiety and depressive disorder, a share that has been largely consistent up from one in 10 adults who reported those same symptoms back in 2019. Four times more not just one in 10 in 2019, but in 2020, as we creeped into 2021, four out of 10 adults were saying that they were suffering from anxiety and depression. I mean, walk down memory lane with me. This is a really fun, very Christmas festive thing, I realize. By the end of 2019, our hope was that the virus didn't come here. I still remember the first headline that hit in San Diego that there was a potential individual who had returned from a trip in China and was living and residing, it was either in Forest Ranch or Del Sur, and there was fear that that person may have been infected. And all of us braced, and then all of us breathed a sigh of relief when we realized the person tested negative, and we thought we dodged the bullet. Our hope was that the virus wouldn't come here. By March, our hope was that at some point we'd be able to understand what this virus was and what we were facing because the whole world had basically shut down. In fact, the day, that, the day that everything shut down, my two brothers and I who were living here in San Diego, we drove to Phoenix, Arizona to watch spring training baseball. Uh, by the time we stopped for gas in Yuma, 
the NBA had already canceled uh, the foreseeable future because of a, a player who had made a joke out of it the night before, touching a bunch of microphones, and then got sick and tested and was positive. <laughs> By the time we pulled into Phoenix, they had officially closed down baseball as well, uh, which was quite the road trip to make a quick turnaround and go back. Our hope then was that our government and politicians would handle all this and lead us through it. And here we are. Then the hope for many was that a vaccine would just end this once and for all. In fact, I remember an article that as we got close to a vaccine being released, the article was entitled, The Vaccine Will Bring Hope for Us All Once Again. And this is by no means any sort of an anti-vax rant at all. I think every person should have their own ability to choose whether or not they'll get the COVID vaccination. I'm just reminding you that this was really the world's hope, that this would fix and end this. Another article I read uh, as the vaccine was being rolled out was entitled, An Injection of Hope. The article began with the statement, after more than a year of quarantine and social distancing, it, the vaccine, instills hope with each injection. Fast forward to our life even this week, entering the holidays with hopeful hearts, so excited for Thanksgiving, and the day before Thanksgiving, most of us got notification, rolling blackouts are coming. <laughs> you will spend Thanksgiving without power. And then the day after Thanksgiving, we woke up to, it, you probably saw it like I did, we were inundated with new headlines all about a new COVID variant that spreads more rapidly than anyone we've seen up until this time. And all of us took a deep breath and said, can't we just get a break? All of this talk of hopelessness, and yet we haven't even mentioned the racial tensions we've seen, social unrest, divisiveness on every layer in front, and political shenanigans that most of us don't even have words for, and we haven't even looked beyond our own borders to look around us at the tragic and overwhelming things that have taken place in Myanmar, or Haiti, or Ethiopia, or Afghanistan, or a COVID-ravaged country like, uh, like what we watch play out in India, or do we even remember the fires that were raging out of, out of control in Australia? Like all of these things have happened just in a relatively short window of time. Our world needs hope. And for us, to hope in God is to believe that the story is not done being written. You see, hope is so very different from a wish that we, we don't just sit here and say, I wish that this were different. I wish that it would change. It's so different. Hope is different from optimism. Optimism that says, I'm going to choose to believe that there are brighter days ahead. It's like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz clicking her heels together, closing her eyes to reality, and all of a sudden dreaming of happier places and happier days. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Hope is different than that. Hope has been described as the expectation of coming good. Author Tim Mackey, he's the creative director for the Bible Project, and his PhD is in Semitic languages and biblical studies. He explained hope this way. He says, Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. Some would say it's crazy. and Maybe it is, but biblical hope isn't optimism based on odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Hear this, Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. So we wait. To hope in God is to believe that the story of God is not yet done being written. We look around, what we observe is a world that's void of hope. It's hopeless. But then we remember, we don't just observe that, this is the second thing we do. We remember. What we remember is Jesus' arrival securing our hope. Jesus' arrival changing all of that. You remember back in the garden, we began by reading it in Genesis 3, 
that everything went wrong when for the very first time mankind reached up to grab hold of the authority that was God's alone. They grabbed hold of the right to define good from evil. And ever since that day, mankind continues to self-destruct as it is continually determined to self-define what's right and what's wrong. Sin entered God's good world in that moment and things have never been the same. Now, one thing remained the same. That's that the fall did not diminish God's love for us. It did, however, make his love far more costly for him. You see, before Jesus' first coming, a promise echoed from the garden itself across generation by generation, across century after century, even millennia after millennia, the promise would echo forward. And the remainder of the book and of history is not just focusing on man's attempt to reach back to heaven to be made right with God. Instead, it's focusing on how God will, uh, we follow the story of how God will unfold his great promise to remedy what we've done wrong. That promise that echoes out of Genesis chapter 3 itself. You see, in the garden, God said it this way. He says, I'm going to crush this. But in doing so, I'm going to be wounded. Like an individual who'd go out to stomp a poisoned serpent that in doing so would make him so vulnerable to its striking against its heel, to its striking against his leg with venom, that God would, in a sense, make himself so vulnerable that in the moment that he would crush the serpent, the serpent would inflict and inject a lethal blow to Christ on the cross. You see, the, the promise that God makes in Genesis 3 makes it clear that mankind's hope for deliverance would only come in the form of a deliverer. It'd be a person. In fact, Genesis 3 says it would be from the seed of a woman. Now, you know this. It's not sex ed today, but a woman doesn't have the seed. It, a woman has the egg. But it's saying here that something miraculous would take place, the seed of a woman. That there would be an, an, a miraculous inception of a baby that heaven would give. And the implications of that were not lost on the prophet Isaiah when he would write some 700 years before Jesus would arrive. He would write what we read. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Children are born every day. But a son being given is connected to that promise in Genesis 3. A miraculous conception with no earthly father, with no fallen nature connected. For Christ to rescue us and begin again the reign of God, the kingdom of God on the earth, we've studied how Jesus would stand up and say to his friends, I must suffer. It wasn't just that he had to come, but he made it clear that he had to die. And so Jesus would establish his kingdom just like everyone else in history does with a violent act of bloodshed. That's how he'd set up his kingdom and plant his flag in history. But Jesus would do it in such a way that no one else has ever done it before, he would not go out to shed the blood of others. He would instead establish his kingdom with the shedding of his own blood on a cross. You see, Isaiah penned those words some 700 years before Jesus would find himself wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. He, he said those words some 300 years before the final prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, would arrive on the scene. And after Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. There are generations of the people of God waiting on God, waiting in tension, not in comfort and in leisure. They're battling for faith while waiting in oppression. You know your history. And they're waiting in discomfort, waiting for Messiah to come. 
God was preparing to speak his greatest, most powerful word to all of mankind. What he would speak is the word made flesh who would dwell among us. And so he creates a pause, a long and distinct pause that would add emphasis to that momental revelation that there'd be a humble manger that would be found with God himself laying inside of it. A a bed of straw in a feeding trough laid the fulfillment of God's promise that that echoed all the way from the garden itself. You know, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, there are two different words that are translated in English as hope. The the first one is very straightforward. It's yakal. It, It simply means to wait for. It's the word that's used when Noah waited on the ark. He waited for the waters to recede. He yakaled. He had to sit and wait for a period of time for the water to recede. But the other word that's translated hope is totally different. It's kavah. And kavah also means to wait, but it's, li- it's, it's linked to a Hebrew word kav. Kavah, the, the root of it is kav, and kav simply means a cord, like, like a rope, like a rope that's been pulled in tension, that's held tightly, waiting for there to be release. It stays in a state of tension. The, the kavah, it's the feeling of tension and expectation while you're waiting for a release. You're waiting for something to happen. It means to wait in tension. That's what this means. In biblical Hebrew, he, hope is about expectation and waiting in tension, waiting for a good God while you find yourself in a broken world. That's what we're waiting for. In fact, that's what biblical authors make very clear. What are they waiting for? Well, in the period of Isaiah, the prophet, as the nation was in this endless pattern of rebellion and self-destruction, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 7, he speaks up and says, at this moment, the Lord is hiding his face from Israel. So I will kavah for him. I will wait with expectation on him. That's what my hope is in. God himself was his hope. The psalmist would echo these same sentiments. In fact, the psalmist would write in Psalm 130, he says, I kavah the Lord. I I wait in tension for the Lord and let Israel wait for the Lord because he's loyal and will redeem us from our sins. We wait in tension. and, And in the Old Testament, what they waited for was a deliverer's arrival. They waited for God himself. You see, biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it so different from optimism. Our hope is not for a good outcome. It's in a good God who's demonstrated and proven time and time again his goodness. We wait for that person. You see, to hope in God is to believe that the story is not yet done being written. In the first Christmas morning, when hope arrived in the person of Jesus, we're reminded of that old, beautiful old Christmas carol from the 1840s. I believe it's an old French carol. When the the writer, he says, oh, holy night, the stars, they're shining brightly. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long has laid the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The thrill of hope arrived with Jesus. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The world needs hope. Oh, fall on your knees, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine, oh, night when Christ was born. We have a world that's void of hope. 
But we remember Jesus' arrival secured our hope. That we do not hope in good circumstances or a good outcome. We hope in a good God who has proven his goodness and his faithfulness to his promises. We remember that. We don't just observe a world. We remember the first advent, the first coming. But then the other thing we do is we long for. This is the third and final thing. We long for Jesus' return, where we forever experience the beauty of hope. That's what we're meant to do in this season, is not just look at a broken world void of hope, not just look towards a manger that, that secured our hope, but look forward to a coming king where he will usher in in his kingdom, where we will forever experience the beauty of hope. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 39, verse 7, And now, O Lord, what else can I kava to, to wait in tension for? You are my hope, he said. The New Testament would pin our hope directly on a person. It would echo, Peter would in his writings, he'd echo the writings of the psalmist. When the psalmist says, you, O God, you are my hope, Peter would say it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Jesus is our living hope. That is our hope, Jesus. Jesus is our living hope, not just his arrival that gives us hope. It's more than just his death that gives us hope. It's his resurrection that leaves us with a living hope. Hope, our hope today has a name, and his name is Jesus. Yeah, we can look at a world that's, that's void of hope. Yes, we can remember the miracle of hope breaking through in the incarnation when the word became flesh and was made to dwell among us as a little baby who was wrapped in swaddling clothes. They're lying in a manger. But now we're meant to look forward to long for Jesus' return. Our expectation and waiting intention is wrapped up in the second advent. We wait intention for the second coming, that second arrival. But our waiting is with expectation and certainty. Please hear me say this. Our waiting today is with expectation and certainty for our resurrected Savior, our living hope, has promised and proven that nothing will stop him from fulfilling his promises. Hear me say that. Our waiting today is with expectation and certainty for our resurrected Savior, Jesus, our living hope, has proven that nothing will stop him from fulfilling his promises. Not Satan or sin, not sorrow or pain, not a cross or a grave, nothing will stop him from fulfilling his promises. So today, hope is is in our modern culture, it's most often thought of as like the grown-up version of wishing. And this is why when someone's hope seems too outlandish, we, we refer to it as wishful thinking. But for the Christian, hope is not wishful thinking. Hear me say this. It is God's past faithfulness that produces hope in us for our future with him. We could say it this way, that we look forward with confidence by looking backwards towards a cross and an empty tomb. We can look forward with confidence today with hope in our hearts By looking backwards, yes, to a manger, but to a cross and an empty tomb where we find our living hope emerge. Timothy Keller, he he writes, he says, While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows. Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting of the coming joys. You see, some scholars, they would define hope as, uh, hope is this, they would say it's the expectant leap 
or an expectant leap forward, that hope is an active thing, that this is what Christian hope looks like. It doesn't just ignore fear or anxiety or doubt. No, it's willing and able to confront those things. It holds steady, clinging to peace in the midst of chaos, that, that through life's many treacherous storms, be they pandemics or political divisions or social unrest or personal struggle, Christian hope is anchored to something greater that has happened and something greater that is going to happen, that he will come again. You see, Advent is our great reminder of this, that in this season, we're not merely to turn back, to journey back into history, but that our hearts simultaneously are meant to leap forward into our promised future together. I mean, if you had a dollar for every time you've heard a reporter say, asking some expert over the last two years, when can we hope this will all end? When can we hope life goes back to normal? When can we hope that things are good and right again? If you had a dollar for every time you heard a reporter ask an expert that question, I'd guess you could probably make an all-cash offer on a house here in San Diego, even in this inflated market. I mean, we're all sick and tired of hearing the question of an expert. When can we have hope again? The reason that we ask those questions, though, and the reason even when we hear it that we lean in to hear the answer is because we're, we're trying to find something to attach our hope to, something to hang on to, kind of like an anchor point. We're waiting for them to give a response and say, it's going to be done at this time frame. It will end when this is released. It will change when this happens. And we want to attach something there, like the cord from a ship, a chain from a ship, a, a attached to an anchor point. We want to attach there because if we do, all of a sudden, we know we can just get through today knowing that there's a brighter future tomorrow. All of us lean in in those moments. Now, now tease out that imagery for a second. Like a ship, I'll attach a line to that anchor point in hopes that regardless of the wind or waves, the storm that may rage, I will hang on to that, believing that it will hold me secure in the midst of all the uncertainty raging around me. The reason that question is asked so often, the reason that question is in so many headlines is because all of us are searching for some sort of an anchor point. Something to keep me grounded, people will say, or something to keep me anchored so I don't end up shipwrecked on the rocks. So I don't find myself just tossed to and fro as scripture talks about by everything that heads my way, that I'm bounced all around and I'm up and I'm down and I'm all over the place and I'm so wiped out because I'm hopeless. Hebrews chapter six, the writer of Hebrews, he begins to write in Hebrews six saying that because God has proven to us that he will not lie, because of the immutability of his promises, immutable, his promises are immutable. It means that they are unchanging in nature or purpose. Hear me on this. Because he says that this is what God has promised is, or this is what God has proven is that every promise he makes, he will be faithful to. They never change. He always holds on to them. They always come to pass because that's who God is. He, not just his promises, but he is immutable, unchanging in nature or purpose. He can be trusted. Here's what he then says. He says, this hope, chapter 6, verse 19, the hope that he is unchanging and that is his that his promises are true, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has, forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hear this. This hope, the hope we have by looking at the promises of God that have always, he's always been faithful to. This hope we have that a God who has always proven himself to be faithful, this hope is an anchor to our soul. Our hope in God's goodness and his faithfulness to his promises is meant to function like an anchor. In the midst of whatever storm is raging, in the midst of whatever heartache or suffering or sorrow you face as a person today, hear me say that, in the midst of whatever you face today, Turn your eyes towards Jesus. Our hope is in his goodness and his faithfulness to his promises. And if we lean into that and look his direction, his hope or, or he begins to be like an anchor for the soul. Oh, turn towards the one who will pronounce, behold, I make all things new again. The one who will take us all the way back to Eden, where wrongs are made right, where sorrow will be no more, where tears are wiped away. We're quoting from J.R. Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings, where everything sad will become untrue. That's what we long for. Why don't you close your Bible? You see, the, the purpose of the season is to turn our minds to what has happened in the first coming of Jesus. And in doing so, please hear me, not just to turn our minds that direction, but to awaken then our hearts to the hope that we have at Jesus' second coming. That we're remembering Christmas, his first advent, his first arrival, but then we're leaving here saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Awaken our hearts to the hope of your second coming. Let your hope today be shaped by what has happened, but also shaped by what is promised to happen in your future. Let your hope be shaped by, yes, what has happened, but also what is promised to happen in our future with Jesus. Yeah, we look around at a world that's void of hope, and this has been a brutal couple-year stretch. But we remember in the midst of all of that, Jesus arriving to secure hope for us. And we long for Jesus' return where we forever experience the beauty of hope. And maybe you'd choke on that and be like, hang on, we hope for all of eternity in heaven? In fact, Paul would write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. He says, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. It's easy for us to understand and to see, well, well how love will last forever. We understand that since love is, it's an essential part of God's nature and we will love him forever and we will be loved by him forever. Yes, love will last forever, but how will faith or hope be forever a part of our experience with him in heaven and eternity to come? Well, well faith in Jesus, it's not going to cease in heaven. We will not stop trusting Jesus just because our faith has become sight. If anything, our trust in him will grow greater because now we're seeing him as he is. And we experience his love and we see him as a lamb who was slain. We see the depths of his care for us and what it cost him to rescue us. Our faith turns to sight, but our trust in him changes forever. But think about this. What about our hope? 
Similarly, our, our hope will not cease just because the one we call our blessed hope has come. Our lives will continue in an eternal state with him, as will, please hear me, our expectation with bated breath of the unending adventure we will have with him forever. Our hope will never cease because our hope is in the one that continues to write a story, who continues again and again to reveal his glory, who continues around every twist and corner and turn to amaze us with creative beauty and unending love for all of eternity to come. These three things will, will last forever, our faith, our hope, our love. To hope in God is to believe the story is not done yet being written. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. So Jesus, today we look your direction and our hope as we look away from everything else is really only secured to that, to your unfailing love. Jesus, you are our hope. We look to our world and we observe there's a vacancy, a void. It's hopeless. And Jesus, for many of us, that has been our experience and stretches of these last two years. But Jesus, we remember at Christmas that you have secured our hope. Jesus, that your arrival changed everything. That the expectation and tension that, that people lived in for centuries, for millennia, that it was found and experienced in the humility and frailty of Jesus, you coming, of you arriving in fulfillment of that promise. And Jesus, for us today, we, we long for, we truly do, we long for your return. Jesus, where you come back to make the world right again, where you come back to usher us into the perfect experience of eternal hope of joy around every corner, of an expectation of everything that awaits us surpassing the prior. Jesus, we look towards you today, and we want to stand in contrast to our world and culture. May we be a hope-filled people in the midst of a bleak and hopeless backdrop. Jesus, for my friends who are here today who specifically are just hopeless, they can't see beyond a gray cloud. They don't have any anticipation left in them for something good. Jesus, today, I pray that you would be their living hope. Jesus, that even in this moment that you would gently affirm them, that you draw near to them as you say you'll be near the brokenhearted, that you, the God of all comfort, would comfort them, that you, the Prince of Peace, would give them peace, and that their hope could be anchored Jesus in you, our living hope. So God, breathe life in hearts today. And I pray this week we take the time to reflect. Yes, we, we remember hope arriving 2,000 years ago. But we also look forward, Jesus, to you making good on every promise, even as you've done up until this point. And that promise that we wait for is making this world right again. And by grace, allowing us to be a part of that. So Jesus, we look your direction. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.